let's bow again for prayer. And as we open God's word to Mark 6 this morning and consider Jesus the prophet without honor, let's ask the Lord to open our hearts and minds. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the Lord Jesus Christ. You describe him to us as the word made flesh. We're thankful for the inscripturated word, but even beyond that, we're thankful for the incarnate word. Thank you that Jesus is the the exposition of you, our Father in heaven. He is that, he is like a great sermon. His life preached and his ministry proclaimed truths concerning who you are and what you are doing, things that are of eternal significance for us. So even as we come again to Mark's gospel, the account of the life and ministry of Jesus that is designed to to awaken our faith, to cause us to believe in him, to cause us to submit fully to him and serve him with all that we are, would you give us eyes to see Jesus as he is, not as we might imagine him to be? Would you give us ears to hear him speak, ears that hear his truth eagerly, not ears that are tainted by our own prejudices or our presuppositions? Would you give us hearts that yield to him, wills that submit to him? Oh, Lord God, we, we ask you to establish your dominion in our souls on this day through our time in the word. Help us, grow us, change us. Just don't leave us as we are. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, would you open your Bibles to Mark's gospel, the sixth chapter. Mark 6, you can follow along on the screen or the printed copy. Let's read together, or you follow along as I read the first six verses. Speaking of Jesus, Mark writes, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Now to put this in its context... In chapter 5, we saw a series of miraculous, mighty works that Jesus did that created great amazement and astonishment. It actually began with Jesus engaging the the demon-possessed man, the one who just lived outside of the cities of the Decapolis, lived in the graveyard itself. They had tried to bind him in order to protect their households and communities from his violence, and no chain could restrain this man. And Jesus engages him. 
Because Jesus is on mission, remember, not just to demonstrate that he is God, but actually to plunder the household of the strong man, the devil. And there may have been no greater demonstration of Jesus' power over darkness than healing the man who was possessed of thousands of demons. Because remember, when Jesus says, tell me your name, the, the reply is, we are legion, we are many. And Jesus cast those demons out, and the last scene in that particular, uh, that particular paragraph is of that man seated, clothed, and in his right mind. It's just extraordinary. Well, then the next sequence of events came as, as Jesus went back across the Sea of Galilee and enters that area near Capernaum, and Jairus, the president of the local synagogue, comes to him and says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come with me. And so Jesus stops what he is doing. He begins to go with Jairus. And on the way to Jairus' home to heal this little daughter, there's a woman who's been, who's been suffering for 12 years with a hemorrhage. And she's exhausted all of her resources, been to multiple physicians, and even their treatment has actually increased her suffering, Mark records for us. And she comes to Jesus, tries to sneak up on him, as it were, doesn't want to imposition uh, him at all or inconvenience him, and she just says to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. You see, she's heard the reports of his greatness. She's heard the reports of the mighty works, and, and she says, if I can just get near him, I'll be healed. And sure enough, she touches his garment, apparently. Power flows out of him. She's healed in a moment, and that's when Jesus turns and says, who touched me? And remember the response of the disciples. They say, we're in this massive crowd, and you say, who touched me? Well, he draws that woman who had lived in a life of isolation because, remember, that disease not only caused her physical suffering, it created a, a spiritual and social barrier. Her uncleanness meant she couldn't worship in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Her uncleanness meant that she couldn't be near the people that she loved uh, because it would make them ceremonially unclean. And so Jesus positions her to give testimony to what just happened. So it's out of that, out of that sequence. Oh, well, let me finish the story. Uh, I forgot about the, the next really important part, right? So Jesus heals her, then continues with Jairus. People come from his house and say, your daughter's dead. And he goes and raises her from the dead. Well, you can imagine the reports that are just continuing to roll out of scenarios like this. And so Jesus returns to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is his hometown. It's where he grew up. It's where Mary and Joseph made their home. And as this passage records for us, where apparently Mary and Joseph had uh, four more sons and at least two daughters. Quite a remarkable moment for him. And as we think about Nazareth being his hometown, you might also recall one of the things that Nathaniel said. It's actually recorded in John's gospel when, when the initial call comes, hey, we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel says what? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, it's not because it's such a corrupt and defiled place. You know, like only bad people come from there and only bad things come from there. It's more that it's, it's such a, an inconsequential place. Can anything substantial come from Nazareth? So it's not a place of big reputation. I mean, none of the technology companies were looking to relocate to Nazareth you know, because of the highly educated workforce or the favorable economy. It's, it's just a place, a small place, an out-of-the-way place. But Jesus is coming home. And it's important for us to ask this question. What kind of welcome 
might we expect for him at this particular point? Well, think back through the Gospel of Mark. Miracle after miracle. Mighty work after mighty work. He's been preaching and teaching in a way that everywhere he goes, people say, where is this material coming from? How does he speak with such authority? He speaks in a way that's not like the scribes that we're used to hearing in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So all of this that we have read in the Gospel of Mark to this point would, might build our expectation and hope that Jesus will receive perhaps a kind of hero's welcome. That the little town of Nazareth that he has grown up in might be celebrating these mighty works of God that are the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies that they would have known well. But that's not at all the response that he receives, is it? No, they actually dishonor Jesus. Look at the text again with me and go to verse 2 and notice that as he begins to teach on the Sabbath in the synagogue, and, and here's a remarkable thought. This is the place where he grew up as a boy hearing the word of God read on the Sabbath. It's like he's come back to his home church. You've got to picture this in a very personal way. He enters the synagogue where he grew up, hearing Moses and the prophets read each Sabbath day, and he begins to teach. Now, Mark doesn't record this, but, you know, there are are three other Gospels, and Matthew and Luke include a lot of the same material included in Mark, and Luke actually records for us the particular thing or text, if you will, that Jesus was teaching on that particular day. If you want to go to Luke 4 very quickly, you'll find... Uh, a number of verses there, but I'm just going to read four verses. Luke, eight, Luke 4, 18 to 21. Luke tells us exactly what Jesus read and began to teach on that particular day. Verse 18 says, He opened the scroll of Isaiah and he read this portion. It's what Matt just read before the offering. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. What will our hometown boy say to us this Sabbath? And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine? They probably expected him to tell them what Isaiah really meant. He's going to teach or preach an expository sermon. But he actually says, Today, This is fulfilled. And it's clear both in Luke's gospel and in Mark's gospel that he is owning this for himself. He's saying Isaiah was speaking of me so many years ago, 700 years before this. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. I am the one that was promised by God of old who would come and do all of these things. Now, go back to Mark's gospel and notice their response. Many who heard him were astonished. And that word is is used in a number of places in the New Testament. And it actually, it has the idea of being amazed, being kind of like knocked out of your senses. It was a big time whoa moment for them. Or maybe we would say, are you serious? Are you for real? 
And then Mark includes five different questions that were just starting to come out of their hearts and probably their mouths as well. They're trying to process this. I mean, this is so stunning, if not outrageous. And remember back in chapter 3 of Mark, when a big crowd had gathered in another location and his family came to him, and what did they tell the people? He's out of his mind. So he's already faced some of this astonishment that translates into unbelief from family members. Now he's experienced it from his hometown community. They are astonished. And so Mark records a series of questions. The claims of his teaching forced them to, to say, where did this man get these things? And I was thinking earlier, there's kind of this underlying implication. He didn't get it in this synagogue when he was a kid. That's me reading a little more into the text and what God actually gives us. But, I mean, it fits the context, doesn't it? He's preaching and teaching things that they're saying, we don't know where this came from. Second question, the weight of his teaching. I mean, there's something about it where they ask, and what is the wisdom given to him? That is the, the deep knowledge and enlightened understanding. He's claiming to be Messiah. He's saying, I, Isaiah 63, 1 through 3, it's written about me. Where did this wisdom come from? Third question, the power of his works. How are such mighty works done by his hands? These are mighty works that are characteristic of God, not a carpenter. And their response puts to rest some of the, the apocryphal stories about Jesus as a boy. Are you familiar with any of those? Anybody ever stumbled across these things? I have. And I've had several people through the years ask me, hey, what do you know about the infancy gospel of Thomas? And I've read enough to know that, um, I mean, there's stories that are made up. Let me give you an example. One of those, this is really interesting, is that apparently, and again, this is, this is made up. This is not Bible. But when Jesus was little, uh, he took clay and he made 12 sparrows and uh, brought them to life and then released them. Well, you know what? I think the, the response of his hometown, that little community that, probably knew everybody's business. I think their response demonstrates that they're saying he claims to be Messiah, claims to be the Son of God. We don't believe it. See, if he had been doing things like that as a child, they'd have already gotten that. It's one of those little interesting sidebars uh, of thought that I think is helpful for us. Go back to the text with me. Look at the next question. See, they're feeling the incongruity, the tension between what he's claiming and what they know about him because their next question, is not this the carpenter? I want to tell you just a little bit about that particular vocation. The term they use uh, to describe him is used predominantly of workers in wood, though it can be applied to craftsmen of other sorts. One author writes, uh, of craftsmen of other sorts, such as masons, sculptors, or smiths. In a small village, the tectone, that's, that's the Greek term for this, or what we translate as carpenter, would need to be versatile, able to deal both with agricultural and other implements and also with the construction and repair of buildings. As such, he was a significant figure in the village economy, probably also undertaking skilled work in the surrounding area. In this context, then, there's nothing derogatory in the term the point is rather in its familiarity. 
The carpenter is a reassuring symbol of normality, not the sort of person from whom you would expect this profound wisdom or these mighty works. See, that's the tension and disparity that they feel. They know him as an ordinary worker, like so many of them probably were. They know him as the carpenter, yet they're hearing him teach in a way that is not consistent with that. They've also heard the reports coming out of Capernaum and Decapolis and other regions that he has performed these mighty deeds, raising little girls from the dead, healing those who are sick with chronic diseases of all kinds, casting out demons that no one else has been able to control. And they're saying, we know him as that, but he claims to be this. We hear the reports. We just can't believe it. And then they go on to say, he's the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us. Now, we cannot say for certain that referring to him as the son of Mary is an insult, but we do know a couple of things about that particular day and age that at least make us wince a little bit to hear them describe him as such. It would have been a more common practice in that day to refer to him as the son of his father, in this case, Joseph, and he is in some other texts. In that day and age, much like some of the ethnic traditions, uh, not so much in our culture, but others, where a child is identified by his father. My wife has uh, Swedish heritage behind her, and one of the practices in Sweden was to take the name of the father And then a child born to that father, whether a son or a daughter, they would attach that to the last, uh, to the end of his name. So Lars' son, well, you knew that's the son of Lars. And if Lars had a daughter, guess what her last name is? Lars' daughter. So she's not a Larson, but I'll just demonstrate it this way. It would be, if Kristen were, you have a Larson, though. And this is her sister, Anne, by the way, so it's true for her as well. Um... If they were the daughters of Lars, it would be Kristen, Lars' daughter. And if there were sons born to Lars, then it would be, you know, it would be John, Lars' son. So we would expect this to be, he's the son of Joseph. We also know that at some point in the lifetime of Jesus, Joseph died. So that may be a second option, that Joseph is deceased at this point. So it's just simply the acknowledgement that this is his living parent, the son of Mary. But we also know uh, from other conversations recorded in the Gospels as well as later Jewish writings that accused Jesus and his mother of an illegitimate birth. And there are records of those who very aggressively tried to charge her with immorality and consequently undermine his life and ministry as one who was born out of wedlock. We don't know exactly what is taking place here, but if you cast it into its larger context, it it seems reasonable that this actually could be a derogatory statement. A criticism, if you will. The point here seems to be that Nazareth finds no reason to believe his claim that he is the Messiah 
prophesied by Isaiah. They are rejecting his teaching. They are choosing to say no to the word of God as it is clearly and personally opened by the Son of the Most High. You know, for those of you who know Jesus and have known of him, that that may seem rather breathtaking to you. But for those of you who struggle to bring some things together that you say, it just doesn't make sense to me, you actually understand exactly where Nazareth is. You're looking at some of the truth claims of Christ as you understand them. Maybe you've read the Bible for yourself or you've heard others preach and teach it as we are doing here today. And you say, I I get it. There's part of me that wants to believe, but there's also part of me that really struggles to believe. You know, you are not the first and you won't be the last. But can I encourage you to pay attention to the response of Jesus as we get there in just a few more minutes because their rejection of his teaching actually leads them one step further and that is the rejection of his person. Look at the second half of verse 3. That series of questions leads them to this place. They took offense at him. It's one thing to be uncertain about the claims of Jesus. It's one thing to be exploring them, to be open to them. It's another thing to make a willful choice as they are doing to take offense. The, the word, if we were to transliterate that, that means that we take that old Greek term and we try to find the closest English word letter for letter and move it through. It would sound almost like scandalize. This scandalizes them. They allow themselves to be scandalized. Rather than listening to the teaching, taking it at face value, rather than acknowledging the reports of those mighty works that multiple witnesses are testifying to, they actually make a decision to say no to Jesus. See, the common practice in that day was for a young man who would become a rabbi uh, to be apprenticed by one who is reputable. Jesus has no track record behind him in that way. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, chapter 7, verse 15, the Jews were marveling, saying, how is this, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? See, he never did the apprenticeship. He's not the theological son, as it were, of a really well-known, reputable rabbi. You know, this reminds me, though, of, of Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. Part of Isaiah's prophecy includes this question, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Then speaking of Messiah, Isaiah writes, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Do you understand what he's saying there? That's Nazareth. They, they knew him. But as a, as a young man, as a boy, as an adolescent, there was nothing extraordinary about him that they said, this, this is the Messiah. This is the one. He's just an ordinary person. Isaiah continues writing, though. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Then Isaiah actually includes himself in the company of people who at at one point rejected him and said, no, 
He can't be the one. Or I refuse to believe that he's the one. I will not acknowledge that he is the one. This too is fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. One of the commentators who's been very helpful in my study of Mark's gospel writes, exposure to Jesus in the gospel is no guarantee of faith. Indeed, apart from faith, exposure to the gospel inoculates as often as it enlivens. Do you understand that Nazareth is actually becoming harder to Jesus at this point? And that's true for you and me. Anytime we come face to face with the truth of Jesus Christ and say no to it, Anytime we come face to face with the person of Jesus Christ in his glory, in his authority, in his power, and we say no to him, we actually inoculate our souls against him. That's why it's so important for us to listen carefully, to submit fully, to to yield our hearts to the Christ at every point. I pause and I think what a stark contrast this is to what we've seen from other disciples and communities who've encountered Jesus. Some of them have come in simple faith, but also powerful faith. How how different this is from the woman who was healed just a day before this particular occasion. How different this is from Jairus and his household. These are people who hear the wisdom of Christ's teaching, who hear the reports of his mighty works and say... No. Do the claims of Jesus scandalize your heart and mind? Do you feel like there's just such a a leap of faith that you have to take to receive it that you just say no? It is interesting that the Lord never asks us to take a leap of faith. There are steps of faith. But it's certainly not the blind leap of faith. He actually gives us truth to step out on. In the case of Mark's gospel, this is eyewitness testimony that's being recorded. The words of Christ, some of your Bibles, as in mine, are printed in red. Words of Jesus preserved through the generations. He's not asking you to take a blind leap of faith. He's actually asking you to take a step of faith on the basis of his eternal truth that he has given to us and preserved for us. Nazareth is scandalized. The only difference between the people of Nazareth and some of us is time. You know, at this particular point, there's no record that Jesus has entered Nazareth and performed a miraculous work. They actually have to believe the testimony of others who've seen it. They've heard his teaching that he proclaims to be the Messiah sent from God on high. And in the Bible that is open before you this morning gives the same testimony. The only difference is it's 2,000 years behind us now. Don't harden your heart against the Lord. Don't refuse his teaching or his claims. He's come in order that you might have life. Well, we've seen Nazareth respond to Jesus, but now we need to listen to Jesus and watch him respond to Nazareth. Three things about this response in the next three verses. First, there's a stinging proverb. 
Jesus says to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. That is quite a stinging indictment, isn't it? It's a common proverb. It's interesting that Luke's gospel just shortens it a little bit to no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Matthew includes he's without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And Mark expands it to the full statement apparently that Christ spoke by including his relatives. The people who just a couple of chapters before had said he's out of his mind people who should have seen in him the truth of God's revelation, the mighty works, but yet at that particular point, apparently his own brothers and sisters were not in faith. Now, we know at least two of them would, because at, in, in not too many months, they will actually become leaders in the church, and one of them will author one of the New Testament letters. But at this particular point, it's a very difficult season for Jesus If Jesus is issuing this stinging proverb, which really is a stinging indictment that they are dishonoring him, the question is, how do you honor Jesus? Do we honor him if we just, you know, paint a picture of him and hang it on our wall? Say, there's Jesus. We we really think highly of him. That picture is important to us. Do you go through some kind of ritual or ceremony week in and week out? Do you honor Jesus by coming here? It's possible. But you could also be here with no honor for him in your heart. I want to just take you very simply back to the context of Mark's gospel and think of what was happening in chapter 5. People who were desperate came to him in their desperate faith, and that honors him. People who acknowledge their bankruptcy, whether physically or spiritually, come to him and say, here's the need. I'm desperate. I need you. Will you help me? That honors him. Very practically, what does that translate into for us today? Because we can't travel to Capernaum or the Sea of Galilee and find Jesus on planet Earth today. You know what it translates into first and foremost? Prayer. Do you pray to the Lord? Do you call upon him? And those conversations that Jairus had, that the woman with the hemorrhage had, those are kinds of prayers, if you will. There's no special word, special language, special formula that you have to use. use. It's you, out of your desperate faith, coming to him, laying the need before him, and asking him to meet that need. That would be one very specific way. These people are not willing to do things like that. They dishonor him. Here's the second thing you see in the text, verse 5. There's a sad commentary. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, we've seen that term mighty work used uh, several times in Mark's gospel. It's used all through the gospels to recount those, those mighty acts of Jesus that are clearly divine. Only God can do things like this. So the question is, do they actually, does Nazareth actually have a greater power than Jesus? Somehow like he's not able to do the stuff he really wants to do because they're greater than him in some way. 
this is not a restriction uh, on the ability of Christ to do something here, but there's a connection to faith, and that's what we've been looking at all through uh, this portion of Mark's gospel. Faith, he said to the, to the woman with the hemorrhage, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I want you to think of it this way. We're blessed to have uh, lots of technology available to us today, and one of those things that we are all very thankful for uh, is that companies like the Rocky Mountain power company do what they do and because they're willing to run lines to our facility and we're willing to enter into a financial agreement where we pay them so much uh, we have lights we have a little ceiling fan we have an HVAC system that tries to help keep the temperature comfortable in these rooms it seems like we can't get it quite get it right it's either too hot in the winter too chilly in the summertime but nonetheless it's better than if we had nothing happening here today right They've built an astonishing power grid. I did a little research on this. Do you know that the Rocky Mountain Power Company serves almost 1.9 million customers across six states? I didn't know that. Their 72 power plants generate 10,880 megawatts. That's enough to power more than two light bulbs. I'll just put it that way. There's an enormous amount of power available to ordinary people like us. We don't even have to understand how the power grid works, right? All we have to know is that if I push that switch or flip a switch, something really neat happens. And if it doesn't work, then we go find somebody who knows more than we know to come fix it, or as happened to us just a couple of days ago in our neighborhood, the power went out, and next thing I know, this is pretty cool technology, a text from the power company uh, hits my phone and says a power outage has been reported, we will have it on by 1.30, if you have any other needs or questions, you know, please call us at this number, and I'm thinking, that's cool. And they had it on a lot sooner, a lot sooner than that, for which we were grateful, because we were actually in the middle of you know, fixing some breakfast. And um, we need power. But you know, whether you and I flip a switch has no impact on Rocky Mountain Power Company's capacity to produce it and supply it. But if we choose not to either connect it to our house or use the switches in our houses in the appropriate way, we're the ones who missed the benefit. And so Nazareth's unbelief doesn't somehow limit or diminish the power of Jesus. It just keeps them from connecting to the great power grid of mighty works that Jesus is establishing. And that's the importance of your faith and mine. You want to live life on your own and stay disconnected from Jesus? You'll never experience the powerful work that is in him, that he has purposed from all eternity. You'll never know the forgiveness of your sins. You'll never know the release of your guilt. You'll never find the peace in your soul that you long for and know that you were created for. How big a deal is your faith? Well, in one sense, it's not a big deal. It doesn't even create power. It's like you going to the wall and flipping the switch. But if you don't exercise your faith in Jesus, the room stays dark. And that's what makes this so sad. 
It's not that he lost the capacity to do great works. It's just that because Nazareth won't flip the switch, he's not bringing the power into Nazareth. Now, there is one little sweet mercy that I think is included here in Mark's gospel. And if you look at the the verse, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And, And I smile when I read that because I think, you know, for most of us, I mean, how many of us can say we've seen miraculous healings? I know some can. I mean, I shared with you some stories before of some remarkable healings that God sent. So it's sweet to me, though, that despite their unbelief, Jesus still showed his great mercy and power and did a little bit of it. Wouldn't you think that that would stoke uh, the, the fires of their soul to say, we need to believe and start flipping on more light switches? Apparently not. Only a few sick ones were healed. Well, this brings us to the third response on Jesus' part. And this is what I would describe as a stunned response. And and this stuns me. He, that is Jesus, verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. And that term marvel means he's actually struck with astonishment. He's amazed now. What amazes him? Their unbelief. Though they've heard the reports of healing, though they recognize the wisdom and authority in his teaching, they will not believe. They choose to disbelieve him. Again, James Edwards writes, What amazes God about humanity is not its sinfulness and propensity for evil, but its hardness of heart and unwillingness to believe in him. That is the greatest problem in the world. And herein lies the divine judgment on humanity. Humanity wants a spectacular sign of God, or like the devil, a great display of divine power. Remember when when the devil came to Jesus and tempted him? Turn these stones into bread, jump off this building. I mean, he was looking for those great displays of divine power. Edwards continues, but it does not want God to become a human being like one of us. And now we're, we've come full circle. That's what Nazareth is struggling with. We've known Jesus, but he's just a man. And now he claims to be so much more than a man. We won't believe. Humanity wants something other than what God gives The greatest obstacle to faith, Edwards writes, is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us in only a carpenter, the son of Mary. I'm amazed at his humility. I'm sure that you are as well. I'm also amazed at the unwillingness of Nazareth to believe. But I pause at this point and say, Lord, is there Nazareth in me? Where am I unwilling to believe you? And that leads me to three concluding questions that I just want us to spend a little time pondering here at the conclusion. First of all, does Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High, marvel at your unbelief today? That makes it very personal, doesn't it? It's not just me asking, do you disbelieve? But what does Jesus, the Son of the Most High, from his exalted place at the right hand of God the Father, what does he think about your faith today or your unbelief? Is he still astonished as he was with Nazareth saying, oh, my dear friend, you have heard the truth. You've read the first, uh, the, the eyewitness accounts that are recorded firsthand here in Mark's gospel and yet you disbelieve. 
Second question, how do we honor Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High? Well, it begins by taking him at his word. That's the starting point. And then as we take him at his word, we come out of our desperate faith, as Jairus did, as the woman with the hemorrhage did, desperate and dependent. In the men's Bible study on Wednesday nights, we've been doing a kind of a topical study through a number of things, but one of those topics was prayer. And a couple of weeks ago, this profound sentence was recorded in our notes, and I went back to it just in preparation for this message, thinking about this. Prayerlessness is your declaration of independence from God. Challenged by that thinking, you know, I can honor Jesus with my lips and say, oh, I believe that you're Messiah. I believe that you're God. But if I'm not actively praying to him, calling out of my, out of my desperation or my need or my questions and, and concerns, then I'm not really honoring him. How do we honor Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High? And a third question, what might Jesus do in our households, in this assembly, and in this valley if we exercised a humble, sincere faith in Jesus Christ. My prayer is that it would never be said of us as it was said of Nazareth. Jesus could not do many mighty works at Gospel Hope Church because of their unbelief. Wouldn't that be such an indictment? May it never be said over our individual households, Jesus Christ could not do many mighty works in the Brooks household because of their unbelief. I'm not suggesting that we would see spectacular miracles on a daily basis. That's not actually the desire of my heart. Jesus is never interested in turning Christianity into a sideshow. And some have done it. Some have made a lot of money doing it too. But I do long for Jesus to have full reign in my heart, in my family, in this church, in this valley. So maybe I can make this really practical. As in the course of this study this morning, has the Lord pointed you maybe even to a particular thing and said, there's the switch, flip it. Take this step in faith. We've seen the mighty power of Christ at work, even of late in some recent salvations. Daniel and I were talking this morning about one of our children who made a profession of faith just two weeks ago, and Daniel was explaining to me that in the children's time, uh, as he was preaching and teaching them, the, just the work of the Spirit was so evident. How exciting. And, and the new birth is the greatest miracle that's ever been performed on planet Earth. Yes, even greater than raising a dead girl. That's really what we're praying for. There are thousands and thousands of people in this valley who are spiritually dead today. And I can't explain this, but somehow our faith, as we trust God, as we serve him, as we obey him, as we open our mouths to speak of him, that's an act of faith. God uses that little faith, like flipping a light switch, to just connect to this massive gospel power grid. Do not say in your heart, Oh, the days of revival are long gone. America will never see another great awakening. Who are you? You sound like Nazareth. 
See, the question is not, is America positioned for it? The question is, is Jesus who he said he is still? Does he still exercise this great power? And if you've got a question there, then you've got bigger problems than where this nation happens to be. So let us believe and trust and hope and pray and work and serve because Jesus is the Son of the Most High. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord Jesus, as we listen to this account, some of which is your very word, we ask that you would cleanse our hearts of all unbelief, that you would grow our faith that you might use us and employ us however you choose. And one of our greatest fears is that the same kind of sad commentary would be spoken over our households that is forever recorded over Nazareth. But even as I pray that, I'm persuaded of better things, greater things for this assembly. Sweetly, there are so many individuals and and families here who clearly walk in faith. We're not a perfect people by any means, and we're full of flaws and sins and weaknesses, but day by day, we look to you and we trust you. We confess our sins. We obey as best we know how. And we long for you to use us, position us, Lord, that we might bear the work of the gospel faithfully, that we might speak as we ought, when we should, to the people that you have divinely ordained us to speak to. And we know that in this valley there is a great need, many who are confused concerning who you really are and what you have done, many who have never even contemplated the, the fact that by your life and death and resurrection, they may have the full assurance that their sins are forgiven, that their eternal destiny is secure. And so we're asking for the greatest mighty work to be performed, and that is the salvation of thousands and thousands who remain in darkness what part our faith plays in that, we do not fully understand or even know, but we, we yield ourselves and we come saying, Lord Jesus, do with us and through us all that you desire. Would you encourage those who are struggling today to, to believe? Some who at this moment share far more in common with Nazareth than the disciples in these stories or those like Jairus and his family or the woman with the hemorrhage. Oh, Lord God, would you help them to overcome those questions and objections and see the simplicity and power and integrity of your truth? Give them that help. How thankful we are to have this opportunity to gather in your name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.